Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm here in New York. It's very cold. I'm in Vox headquarters. We do the thanks normally at the end of the podcast. In case you're not going to listen all the way through, I want to give special thanks to Jelani Carter and Gold Arthur who trekked here from very far away. They live in outer boroughs, bridges and tunnels. And it's extraordinarily cold and it's their day off. So thank you guys for making this happen. All right. And thanks to you guys for listening. We're here with Jay Rosen, NYU professor, three-time guest on the Recode Media Podcast, a record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes you like the Steve Martin or the uh, Alec Baldwin. Not only that, I've produced a Recode podcast for you You with my interview with Jack Jack Dorsey. Dorsey. So we're going to count you as a four-time guest. Yeah. You're awesome. Every year we have you come on and you talk to us about Trump and political discourse and and journalism and how they all work together and how they may be fundamentally broken. We will talk about all of that. But you've queued me up for this conversation with a new topic. There's a Twitter moment, which you can go by Googling Jay's name, searching for him on Twitter, titled, Election Coverage in 2020 is on track to be even worse than 2016. Mm. Do you diagnose the problem? And then you also have a solution here. Let's start with the problem first. Okay. Let's start with the premise. Yeah. What, beyond the fact that everyone seemed to be surprised by Trump's victory in the, in the immediate aftermath, what was so bad about the 2016 election coverage? Well, when your model for election coverage is the horse race and you get the horse race wrong, it's bigger than just a missed call because you've based your entire coverage on who's ahead, who's going to win, what's likely to happen, what are the the odds, what's, right. what's the probability. So it's not just failing to anticipate Trump's victory, it's that Election coverage is built around the question of who's going to win. To be fair, it was a very close election, yeah. right? And that's what most of the polls said. And you had things like the the Times meter and, and Nate Silver stuff that if you read it in a certain way made you feel that it was going to be a slam dunk for Hillary. But if you go back and look back, pretty much the election, the election results kind of mirrored what the polls said within a degree of certainty, right? Well, yes, you can find cautions in the coverage that in retrospect should have uh, drawn more attention. But but your point is, is not so much that they got it wrong. It's that they did this horse race coverage. This mm-hmm. is the complaint every election cycle. Yes, every election cover cycle. Cover the elections like yeah. they are a horse race. Right. Meaning who, literally who's ahead, who's going to win, what are the odds? Mm-hmm. Full stop. We can imagine why that's a bad way to do all election coverage. But that in in and itself, who's winning, who's behind, that's mm-hmm. sort of basic journalism, right? Yeah. No, it, the point that I've tried to make about horse race journalism is not that a puritanical one, like that's bad for you and that should be destroyed. It's that it's not good enough as the template for election coverage. The race deserves attention. Knowing who's likely to win or who has a chance to win is important. That could be something that voters care about. You certainly wouldn't want to withhold that. So you wouldn't, that, you wouldn't right? want to hold it. You wouldn't want to make a secret of it. But it's just not good enough to sustain journalism over a year and a half or two years. That's my problem with it, is that it shouldn't be the template for coverage. It should be part of coverage. And in addition to that, um, we had another problem in 2016, which was the onset of what we now deal with daily, which is Trump's campaign to discredit the press and the way that it worked in tandem with another perplexing fact, which is that Trump coverage is very popular and is, and is, and is very useful to the media as an industry because it produces attention. And so sorting through that was also a challenge anyway. Most people in journalism now agree that 2016 was not a great year and was was a problem for the press. And so what I saw happening, particularly in the few days after, I'm blanking on her name, the Massachusetts senator who announced Elizabeth for, Warren. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. Oh, well, um, I'll miss some names too. As I get older, this happens to me. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren's announcement was followed by news coverage. And it became clear to me that the people 
charged with covering the campaign are just going to do exactly what they did. What, what about the coverage that uh, was a flag Just for the you? way that, that the question immediately became, does she have the stuff to beat Trump? It was a likability <laughs> discussion. <laughs> Is right? she likable enough? That was part mm-hmm. of it. That, w- that was the one that kind of blew up yeah. online. But it's that frame of, of is she going to be in the final two or three, right, before she's even started, uh, before anybody's even paying attention to what— um, I'm going to play devil's advocate on and off throughout this. Okay, well, um, there are other people. Who have, there's other people who have announced. Thing, right? yeah. And the press has not spent very much time on, on a handful of them. Well, that's right, partly because they don't think they have a chance. Right, right? and there may be, you know— depending on who you read, a dozen people sort of announcing their interest in the near term. Right. It seems useful to me uh, as a consumer to go, Elizabeth Warren is, is running and she has a serious contender and, and we should pay attention to her or we shouldn't. Another signal today, uh, Kamala Harris, yes. I'm probably butchering her name, has announced uh, and immediately we're talking about her chances and right. comparing her old bio. Uh, those all seem to be, especially early on, to be actually pretty useful to a regular news consumer. Maybe I'm not following the election closely, but now I know that Elizabeth Warren's interested. Uh, I'm not going to read every bit of the coverage. Mm-hmm. At some point, if she if she becomes a serious contender, I might seriously look at sort of what she stands for and think about it. And I think I'll, I'll have lots of options to read about that or learn about that if I want. Mm. What, what is what is either Elizabeth Warren losing or what is what is American, what are American political consumers losing in, in sort of this well, initial rush of coverage? <laughs> Either don't cover it at all because it's too early. Uh-huh. Or... Decide that what's important at this stage, two years before the vote, is the debate about where should America go now that it's been taken to this place by Trump. (laughs) Um, And no one needs to know yet what the status of the horse race is. It's way too early for that. And it doesn't matter if some attention is placed on people who have no chance to win because if what the purpose of this year is is a debate, people who don't have a chance to win can, can easily contribute to that. And they and they can in fact they can finish first, as it were, in the discussion that we're supposed to have as a country if they contribute to it. And so that's what I mean by the model. The model of campaign coverage is that it starts as a race, it continues as a race, the middle is a race, the beginning is a race, and the end is a race. And and that works for the purposes of Political junkies, yep. Political professionals whose industry is elections, right? And journalists whose full time job is trying to report on politics. Right. Those we, are the three people who are most served by that and, kind of coverage. And you can tease it out a little more. And you've talked about this in the past. It serves media organizations, uh, which generally are for profit businesses, because the stuff is relatively cheap to produce. You can have talking heads on cable TV to discussing yes, it endlessly. Many, many advantages. The that the horse race model has. Those are some of them. Now, and again, that version of sort of talking about something endlessly and having takes and, and, and quite cheap to put someone in front of a green screen and, and beam them around, that's not specific to politics, right? That's speci- no. That's a, we've uh, way more of that than Trump era, but prior, you know, CNN was doing the poop cruise uh, for, yeah. for weeks on end. Yeah, I remember Malaysian that. plane. Yep. And, and you, you find a thing and you got to fill time and, and, and it becomes that thing. And for the last two years, three years, it's been Trump. Mm-hmm. But there would be something else filling this time. Mm-hmm. If it, and, and, and now it will be the election. But if we weren't having an election this year, we'd find something else to replace that, that void with. Mm-hmm. So what? Uh, Got it. So your, your proposal is what? What do we do? What, leaving aside the, the business ramifications of what we would do, of how we should fill that time, what do you propose we do instead? Well, if it's true that the horse space provides the template for election coverage, which I believe is true, and most people who observe it believe is true, although I learned as a result of publishing this thread that some political journalists are now saying that the horse race, what's that? That's a, Nobody even knows what that is. It's just an abstraction. It doesn't describe anything. This is a really it's, good thread, by the way. You should check it out because one of the Nate Silver has interesting responses. It's, it's yeah, interesting. But this idea that nobody knows what the horse race is and it's not really a useful term and I don't know what you mean by that it is hilarious to me. You but think they're protesting too much. If, <laughs> if that is the template for coverage, the only way you can improve it is by coming up with a different template to replace that one. And my idea for a different template is called the citizen's agenda approach to campaign coverage. And it's different. 
It was first used in the 1990s. It was proven as an alternative, meaning it's practical. You can do it. It's been done. So the Charlotte Observer went with through the Charlotte this. Observer, and others have tried to do it since then. Um, but it kind of fell out of favor, disappeared into press history, and here's how it works. First, and this is the part of the, maybe the hardest thing. First, you have to identify the people that you are serving, the people you are trying to inform. And you ask them at the beginning of your coverage a very simple but powerful question. You go to your readers, your listeners, your, your viewers. Everybody you intend to inform with your coverage. And you ask them this question. What do you want the candidates to be discussing as they compete for votes? Now, notice, this isn't who's going to win, which candidate do you favor, what party has better answers to the nation's problems, but what do you want the candidates to be discussing as they compete for votes. And instead of just asking it in one way, you ask it in every way you can think of and in every forum you can think of, and you listen to what people are telling you, and then using your, your training and your professional skills in listening and synthesis, you produce an agenda of top discussion items that the people you are trying to inform have said they want the candidates to be discussing, which also means that's what they want the media to be focusing on. If you can do that, if you can listen that well, if you can get that input, if you can uh, synthesize and interpret it, you will have a powerful product to um, base your coverage I mean, on. Do you imagine this is the, a, a top 10 list or a yeah, bullet some, point or whatever sort it of, is? And some sort of list, and yes. whether you're CNN or the Des Moines Register, you then, I guess, publish this, make this available. You publish you say, it. Here's our agenda. Here's you, what we want people to talk yes, about. Yes, you publish it. You explain it. Yeah. Not only that, you revise it yeah. because it's a moving thing, right? It moves with the campaign and with events. And, of course, as with any form of in-depth journalism, you have to be right. You have to be accurate. If, however, you are, you have a powerful instrument for organizing your campaign coverage because it should focus on the items on the citizen's agenda. You also have a set of instructions for what the relationship between you and the candidates should be because your job on the citizen's agenda approach is to get the candidates to discuss the items on the citizen's agenda, get them to address it and to flesh out what they have said and what they believe on those questions. Now, it doesn't mean you can't report on the horse race. It doesn't mean you can't do other things that are also very valuable, like candidate profiles. Um, obviously, the citizen's agenda would help you immensely in one area of local coverage that's really important, which is voters' guides. You produce voters' guides. Here are the candidates. Here's what they're running for. Here are the issues in the, in the uh, race. Here's what you should need to know when you walk into the voting booth, which is very practical information. So my idea is you need an agenda to replace the horse race as a set of instructions for campaign journalists. Here's one alternative. But the point I really wanted to make in this thread was not this is my answer. You should adopt it because yeah. it's right but that this should be a time when people in the political press are searching for all kinds of alternatives to the horse race. This is one. I happen to think this is a good one, but there's others as well. And that's the discussion that should be happening. Instead, it's like Elizabeth Warren announced, is she likable enough? Right. Um, and then Trump describes her as Pocahontas. Well, we have yeah, to respond to that. And exactly. now we've got to go ask a Native American uh, representative what they, how they feel about that. We go back and forth. I have... Many questions okay. about what you've laid out. We're gonna, we're all gonna think about our questions first. We're gonna take a break. Back in a minute with Jay Rosen. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. And now we're back with Jay Rosen. He's back from a ski vacation. I'm going to let him time, give him time to finish his coffee. Uh, Jay, my basic problem here with the, with what you've laid out as your, your alternative is we're in a world where I don't know if the, if the candidates would have ever played along, mm. but we certainly seem to be in a world where 
the candidates, and there's an entire right-wing media ecosystem which would 100% not play along with this and may have also prevented this from even working, right? What happens if you poll citizens and a third of them this month tell you their biggest concern are migrants coming over the, the border to infect us with disease and crime, et cetera, or whatever else they've been sort of uh, – what, whatever other meme has been propped mm-hmm. up in the last few months, right? If the citizens themselves are giving you bad data or telling you to pursue stuff that doesn't make sense for the country, mm-hmm. what are you to do with that? Well, um, it's possible they'll say something like that. It's or also- or in, in, uh, Nate pointed this out in one of his responses. You know, most Democrats are most interested in who's going to be Trump. That's their number one response. Yeah. Well, first we have to figure out what people say when you ask them Mm -hmm. instead of anticipating what they're going to say, which is sort of part of the problem, getting ahead of the voters, right? And it's not like you just simply take what they say and just use manufactured phrases and— and, and stereotypes, right? You, you, the idea is that you listen deeply to what they are telling you and you try to discern what the underlying issue there is that can be addressed and should be addressed in a political campaign. And so you formulate, there's, a, there's an art to it. You have to formulate that in a way that makes it discussable, legitimately discussable. Right. And we don't know what the agenda would look like after that um, action takes place because we don't have a press that's trying to do that. I mean, I sort of imagine, right, that, that you're imagining going to people and sitting with them at their table or whatever forum and having a deep discussion and they're telling you, I'm really concerned about healthcare, I'm more concerned about education, all of the kinds of things we think that government should probably have some role in, in helping or fixing. But again, they, they could say, I'm, I'm, you know, blacks. Uh, or however they would describe their racism, right? Because uh, one can, one bit of conventional wisdom about 2016 is it really was a race-driven election yep. and, and that the country couldn't really grapple with that. Do you imagine that the country could grapple with this? I, I imagine that trying to do this would bring them up all kinds of problems like that, yeah. <laughs> lots of them. And you would you would be faced with challenges of interpretation and framing and phrasing um, to really represent what people have told you that would be novel, and would force campaign journalists to think about, well, what's really our purpose here? And that's the whole idea here, right? Because campaign journalism is just too well-known by the people who do it. It's almost like they're tired. They don't, they, like, listening to a lot of yeah. the early 2020 coverage, they sound bored themselves. I don't want to get on the bus. Yeah, exactly, on the bus. So, so yeah, I mean, there'd be a thousand and one problems that would come mm-hmm. up like that. And facing them and, and solving them with some wit and some creativity— some insight would be the whole point of doing it. Absolutely. And then there's a, I don't know if it's a meta question is the right way to put it. I have an overarching question about all this stuff because I think it's a theme you come back to over and over, which is going to the people that you're serving slash providing information to, asking them what they want. We've talked about this a couple of times and having that reflect your work. On the one hand, this is the most obvious thing to ever say about anything that reflects a business. Of course, you want to you you, you want to give consumers that you want to serve your works for Southwest customers. Airlines exactly. Of course, you want to do that. It, there is something in the back of my journalist head though that gets skeevy mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, and I don't know exactly what it is. It could be I'm just wedded to my role as a, as a person who's an arbiter. It can be that I've done digital media in in this decade, and I, I know what sort of responding to what you get from uh, responding to cues you get from Chartbeat or Facebook or Google can can lead you in weird ways. Yeah. And then people That's might a problem. people might say I'm very interested in eating healthy. I'm, I'm ripping off Ezra Klein to talk to you this fall. But you know, if you give them a bunch of Oreos, they're going to eat those Oreos, and they're going to yeah. eat the healthy food alone. <laughs> okay. And so you can tie yourself in knots trying to respond to all the sort of consumer input. Yeah. And then at some point, you do need to make some decisions about what you're going to cover. Totally. Yeah. Well, um, I think anytime journalists hear it recommended that they ask the people they're trying to inform what they want to know about, they respond with these kinds of fears, and they're legitimate fears. I think one way to put it is, if you are listening to the public that you're trying to inform, what becomes of truth-telling? And I think that's a good question, because one of the things we need journalists for is to tell us truths that we may not want to hear. So my point is, what's going to make it likely that people will listen to you when you tell them truths they don't want to hear? What's going to make that possible? Well, my answer would be, 
If they think you understand them, if you have a relationship with them, if you are in dialogue with them, if you've listened well to them, then maybe when you tell them these tough truths that they don't want to hear, they will actually listen. And that's where the arguments come together. Someone is that in order to tell people difficult truths, you have to listen to them. Someone, if a random person comes up to you and says, you should rethink that boyfriend you have, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to listen to him. Your, best, right. your bestie under the right conditions. Exactly. If you have a friend who says, you know what, um, you really need to lose some weight, if you know this person cares about you, it means one thing. If it's a drive-by, it means something completely different. The other, uh, and I have less of a problem with this, but one of the general responses to any of this, this came up with fact-checking Trump with his his nationally televised address at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. which is, this is all condescending. We think we're trying to help the consumer. We're really condescending to them. If we lay everything out, present it to them, people can make their own choices, and we shouldn't be so paternalistic. And by the way, who, who are we to think that, you know, there's a third of the country likes Trump, and not all of them are crazy people, and we should, mm-hmm. we should take them seriously. Mm-hmm. A bunch of different things seem to be in conflict here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's one reason why the horse race model, even though nobody really believes that strongly in it, continues on. Because it has an answer to that, right? Which is, here are the polls, and here's what, what the standing is for the candidates, and one-third of the country is still right. this. And, and you can just, you can kind of like wash your hands. Of and that's also most issue journalism too, right? Yeah. I went to this side, I went to that side, I asked them both, here are both of their quotes. Right. You make, you, you what decide. else do you want from me? Yeah. I'm safe. Totally safe. Not only am I safe, but my discussion for how we're going to cover the 2020 campaign is is very quick. It's easy. We're going to cover it the same way we've covered it before, right? And it's just a question of who we're going to assign. You know, you don't you don't have to actually take any time to think about it. Um, it's quick. It's easy. It's transportable. It's repeatable. Um, not only that, but everybody knows this model. Therefore, it's easy to coordinate effort across a large organization like yours, for example, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's on the same page automatically. You don't have to spend any uh, energy doing that. And there are people by now who are invested in it in the sense that they have made their careers on the on the basis of that, right? And it's also for TV, especially, as you noted, it's uh, perfect because it provides plots, it provides characters, it provides rising action, falling yep. action, everything you need to manufacture a show um, and even anticipate what your shows are going to be like throughout from here into 2020. So it has tremendous advantages. It has built-in advantages that are almost impossible to dislodge. That's why I keep writing about it. Is there a country or is there a, is other than Charlotte, you mentioned a couple other places where you've seen this an alternative model work, where you've seen this work sort of on an ongoing basis as opposed to an experiment? What's different about other countries, and I, I am trying to expand the citizens' agenda model to other countries. I'm trying to interest people in yes. Australia and Canada in doing it. But what the difference is that they don't have two-year-long campaigns. Right. When they, they, they do it they, in a few months. Right. And they look at like, what, what are you doing? And that changes the whole picture. Right. And they go, it's almost like you have a business model attached to this campaign. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah. So we have, here we are two years ahead of time. What are we going to do for two years? Discuss who has a chance to win? It doesn't make sense. And last, I want to go back to this, to the, and we can circle all the way back to Trump, right? It seems like all of this could work, perhaps, except that Trump and maybe the ecosystem that now has created Trump and Trump's put in place might permanently prevent this from happening. Because if, on the one hand, you're trying to have a reasoned, thoughtful discussion about, you know, well, let's have a real discussion about immigration. And you've got a big, important, powerful part of the the electorate and literally the president on down saying either nonsense or being willfully uh, ignorant, however you want to describe it. You, you can't do this discussion. If, if there is a, put it another way, if there is a house fire over here, you have to go throw water at the house fire and you can't mm-hmm. do anything else. Definitely could happen. Um, one of the reasons why I wrote this thread was I saw something else going on, which is that we talked about this, I think, in the first two podcasts in Rico. Trump is creating a civic emergency, and he's also leading a campaign to discredit the American press. Those things go on. That put professional journalism in a very difficult situation where they did not want to be. And it's summed up in Marty Baron's remark, which I think is very profound, We're not at war, we're at work. And what he was saying was, we just have to keep doing our job even though the president is attacking us. That's the editor of the Washington Post. The New York Times has a similar take on it. Right. And what happens with the campaign and also with the takeover of the House by the Democratic Party is that a much more normal picture has returned to Washington politics. 
which is two parties in conflict. There's an election coming up. There's um, the, the the House Democrats have their point of view. The Trump administration has the, its point of view. And now the picture looks very familiar to mainstream journalists. They can slot themselves into that and they can do on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, both sides reporting and they are happy about that. And what's disturbing about that for me is that the civic emergency is still here. It's even worse in a lot of ways. He's getting crazier. The undermining of our democracy is getting more intense. Things are building, like, to a pressure point. And now you have this setup where the conditions are perfect for this sort of artificial balance to return. And the campaign, especially, uh, provides all kinds of opportunities. You're just going to sort of yearning on the part of, of mainstream press to, yes, to present to have a more familiar way. picture to insert themselves into. Even though when they go home and talk to their family, when they go talk to their colleagues at the bar, they say this shit with Trump is worse than you can imagine. Absolutely. It's terrifying. It's I can't print half of what's going on. Totally. When they do, when the Times and the Post, I think, I was really struck, I think this summer both had stories almost within hours of each other describing uh, Trump's real estate patterns. Yep. And doing everything but saying it sure looks like he's engaged in money laundering. They specifically don't say money laundering, and, and they maybe quote someone who's got money. You know, they, they, they quote, they, I don't know. They just don't say it, and they can't say it for legal reasons. They can't say it for, for professional right. reasons. And that was one where I just wanted to shake them and go, just just say what you want to say. Yeah. They can't say it. I know and, and, with the tax story, they sort of did say he's a tax cheat. Yes. Pretty clearly. Tax cheap. But another thing to say, he's actually engaged in money laundering. Still. This is a recent thing that's right. been happening. It's, that's different. It's, yeah. it's incredibly obvious. We just literally legally can't say it mm-hmm. yet. Um, and they get this response all the time um, from the readers, often on Twitter, other forums, saying, why won't you just come out and say that he's lying when he's lying right. or wherever it is? I hear it all the time. And you wrote a bit about this this fall, too, and you said that, that there's sort of a conflict within the Times, within the Post, where Very much so, they yeah. understand what their audience wants. They don't actually want to do that. Right. Why Why not? Well, I wrote specifically with reference to the, to the Times. I feel that there's, um, there's a conflict brewing. It's, it's here already, which is the Times as an economic entity is more dependent than ever on not just its readers, but its core readers. Uh, the one to two percent of the readers who are going to subscribe, paying subscribers, we mm-hmm. value the New York Times, right? So much we're going to pay. And a lot this of money. is their their very clear business strategy is to get everybody on the same page about the subscription funnel and the core readers, the return readers who are going to be the economic future of the Times. Makes sense. Um, those people are not the American public. They are, for the most part, educated, coastal, um, liberal, cosmopolitan people. Probably did not um, vote for Trump. Probably didn't. Um, And they exist in every city across the Mm -hmm. country. They're concentrated in some of the bigger ones. And those people want the New York Times to be far more aggressive on this civic emergency. They want to speak in a plainer language. They are extremely frustrated by... All of the attention paid to Trump voters and how little attention, in a way, is paid to Hillary voters who now mm-hmm. realize that their election was stolen. They're the ones that got upset when the Times had an op-ed page full of Trump voters. Yes. Exclusively this, Trump voters. How dare you? Right. That was a flashpoint, but it was only one of many flashpoints. Right. And I think that the journalists are caught in this situation where they feel grateful to the core readers of the Times. They understand the business strategy. They know these people are the future of their institution. They know they can't rely on advertisers or Facebook or platforms, right? There's no billionaire that's going to come to the rescue for them. Um, and they and they feel kind of indebted to them. And they also feel very powerfully that they need to push them aside. They need to not listen to them. They need to uh, understand both sides. They need to. They need to stay in the middle. Um, they they need to be professional and and have a certain professional detachment. And in normal times, that kind of tension might be survivable. But under the pressure of Trump and the demolition job that he's doing on the American Republic, that is pushed into a kind of tension that's much higher than normal. And and I don't think. The leadership of the Times really has 
a way of grappling with that. I don't, I don't know that they, that they have a strategy for that. They have an f- economic strategy for the mm-hmm. newspaper, and it's working, working pretty well. But for this, I don't know. I think this is why there are these flare-ups all the time between Times readers and Times journalists. It seems like it's a tension they're just going to have to tolerate for a couple years yeah. and maybe more. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about Trump. Uh, every year you come on, we talk about sort of the, the, the basic state of Trump and journalism, which is there's some amazing journalism yeah. being created um, about the Trump administration and its, its after effects. And it's not just the craziness out of the White House and Bannon's up and Kushner's right. down. Um, it's, it's the real kind of shoe leather reporting we all say we want to see, investigative. They're throwing a lot of resources at both Trump himself and what's going on at the EPA. All that's great, countered by Trump is, as you said, successfully waging a war against journalism. I yeah. mean, lots of our democratic institutions in general, but specifically journalism, and seems to be winning. Is there anything that gives you any hope for things improving in the next two years, assuming we have two more years of Trump? No. Is there anything that says, post-Trump, we can fix this? Depends on who gets into power. Um, We don't know how successful the Trump route will be for others. We have historical parallels that we could point to, but we don't know if they are going to work. For example— um, Charlie Savage, I remember, did a lot of reporting about this uh, eight years ago when Bush had built up executive power over legislative power hugely. Yes. And that was a concern at the time. It's, it's hard to remember now, but that was a big deal. And he said once a president gains more power, the next president never gives it up. Right. This is this is part of the Dick Cheney movie that they don't really get into. Yeah. But, but it's it's not just that. And the movie is telling that Dick Cheney became this awful boogeyman that, that, that accumulated power for his own end, but that it kept going into the right. next administration. Because the next president comes in and says, well, that was bad, but that be- that's because he was a bad president. Yeah. I'm a good president. I'll use these powers for good, right? So um, that might happen. On the other hand, we could have a backlash to Trump, right, and want a, re- a return to normalcy, as cliched as that sounds. Who knows? We don't know. But in anticipation of, of this conversation, I did— I sort of came up with my grades for the press. Let's go for it. Under the different parts of this problem, because I don't think you could discuss press coverage of Trump like in the totality. It's, it's composed of different problems. So the first one, and the part that's, that's probably the reason people say this is a golden age for journalism, is that in the investigation of Trump, the press is doing a pretty good job. There are mistakes. There are stories that turn out to be wrong. Right, we're right. We're discussing this a few days after the BuzzFeed story and we still don't really know what to make of that. Yeah, that one, I'm not sure that's a mistake yet. Right. But there are occasional problems, but in investigating Trump, in digging into what actually happened, in alerting the public that there's something serious going on here, um, I I give the press like an A- minus for that. Then there's the problem that Margaret Sullivan helped to name, which is letting Trump be your assignment editor. There, I would give the press a D. <laughs> still today, in 2019. Yeah, I, th- I still think that he he is very effective at getting the press and journalists to talk about what he wants to talk I about. do think we're improving. Maybe. So, up from an F? Maybe, yeah. Right, and just to tease this out, the idea is he says something batshit in a tweet or in an interview. It's a crazy thing to have the president say. You feel dutifully yes. like we should respond to it or at least note it because the president said it's an insane thing. 100% unclear and quite usually unlikely that he actually means it or cares what he's saying. Yes, or he goes on a campaign that lasts for more than a tweet cycle uh-huh. that is based on the no visible facts to back it up. And right? not even that it's not fact-based. It's that he doesn't believe it. He doesn't intend to carry it. Yeah, through. it's completely cynical. It's completely made up or whatever, um, like the caravan, <laughs> right? So that's letting Trump— be your assignment editor. I still think the press struggles with that a lot. Last fall, there was lots of coverage of the caravan, lots of coverage of the press debating whether or not how it should cover the caravan, but it still covered the it's caravan. Still, yeah, that, that's, that's a perfect example. The third problem is responding to what I called earlier in this podcast, the civic emergency that Trump is bringing on, which is really difficult because it requires journalists to puzzle their way through a situation they never thought they would be in. There's nothing in their training or background that prepares them for reporting on the slow motion undermining of American democracy by the person in power or 
to take an, a, a small leap, the possibility that the president of the United States is, in fact, working against the nation's interests, which mm-hmm. is definitely a possibility, right? There's nothing – it's almost like a spy novel. Yep. There's nothing you can in say that out loud school. in 2019 and no one says, you're crazy. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay, well, that's certainly a possibility. So in adjusting their routines, inventing new ones, innovating on the fly in the middle of a civic emergency, which is, I think, a big problem for the American press, I give it like a C. Okay, for that. Then there's a really hard problem you mentioned earlier, which I think is agonizingly difficult to think through. And that is the crack up of the American public. The fact that about a third of the country relies for its news about Trump on Trump. That, as I've said before, is an authoritarian news system up and running for one-third of the country. Right. Can't be reached. You're never at the time. I mean, you could even at this point maybe have video of him committing a crime. They wouldn't believe it. Right. It's not only that they wouldn't believe bad news or accusations against Trump. It's that they mistrust the product of the press on principle. Yeah. And because it's in the Washington Post, it is to be mistrusted, which is different than applying a skeptical lens, right, Mm -hmm. to everything the Washington Post publishes, which had been a conservative attitude for decades. It's gone beyond that now. Yeah, I thought about this when the BuzzFeed story broke or uh, sort of after it broke. And there was, for whatever reason, I wasn't that tuned to the news cycle. And by the time I got to it, I thought, all right, I get that this is a very big deal. It's a giant big deal. You're accusing the, the president of telling someone to lie before Congress. In theory, he could be impeached for it. But I thought he's – I know how this is going to play out, which is a third of the country just won't engage in it, right. period. Right. And I would have to give the president incomplete on that yeah. <laughs> because it's so hard to know what – even where to start that I don't think anybody has an answer to that, right? And then there's the – Another problem, maybe a fifth problem that interests me the most because I'm a journalism professor, um, which is which is kind of an intellectual emergency in, in the sense that many of the concepts, forms, routines, practices of journalism have just broken under the pressure of Trump. So an example would be today, uh, the other day, maybe it was today, Washington Post came out with um, this, its latest number, 8,000 false statements mm-hmm. or lies yeah. that the president has made in two years, right, with an increasing level per day. Right. Um, and so there's an example of a broken form. The fact check, obviously, even if, though it might be valuable, isn't having the effect that it once did, right? It's a broken—he broke it. Right, because the idea is if you accumulate even a small fraction of that many lies, you should be hounded out of office. Or there are political liar. costs. Right. Exactly. That was the idea. Um, or, as um, Glenn Kessler, the Washington Post fact checker, has said many times, what used to happen is that when candidates or presidents made false claims, they would adjust. They would stop making that claim. They would change it so that it was kind of within the rules. Yeah. They would de-emphasize it. Without saying, you got me, they would just change their behavior. And, and it worked kind of, sort of well. Obviously, this is not Trump's approach. And so what I mean by an intellectual emergency is that form is broken. What do we replace it with? Well, in order to figure that out, you kind of have to call your own profession into crisis. And it's related to another thing that I think is really in the background here, Peter. After the debacle of the Iraq war coverage in 2003, in which a phony case for war passed through the political system and the press system without being detected, there was no grand inquiry in journalism about how did this happen. Right, we drummed a few people out of the out of, out of profession. Yeah, there was a few postmortems. There yeah. was there was a few wea culpas, but no large scale reflection on how did this happen? What made this possible? Similarly, after two thousand and eight and the financial crash, you had some small debate about well, did the press alert us? And lots of business journalists said we wrote those stories, yeah. and a lot of other people said oh, I didn't see them, and it was sort of left there. But it wasn't a grand yeah. inquiry. And the same thing after twenty sixteen. The press is not good at reflecting on these major institutional Which is disasters. funny because the press loves talking about ourselves, right? That's why we have this podcast. Well, not to this degree. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so if you have these massive failures that are systematic and the system doesn't ask 
well, what went wrong here? And how can we fix that? What's going to happen? You're going to have the repetition of cycles, which is why when I saw the coverage of Elizabeth Warren, I said, here comes another cycle. And I tried to speak up. Thank you for doing homework in advance of this podcast. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I have notes. It's awesome. One more quick break. Be right back. Back here with Jay Rosen. Uh, one quick aside. Can I give Trump a tiny bit of credit? Trump and his 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 ecosystem for for breaking up some of the artifice, uh, specifically around political reporting. Mm. Uh, we were talking about this at the very beginning. The, the, some some of the the first things you heard the press worrying about after Trump was elected were the the least important things. Right? Mm. Are we going to have uh, access to the, to the actual White House briefing room? Right. Trump has not given us enough press conferences. Right. Right. Uh, um, some of the form and formality now seems to be just killed. Yeah. Right? He's, he's showed you it's pointless. I mean, he didn't intentionally do so. Yeah. Um, maybe it'd be good if we don't bring some of that back. Yeah. Um, we don't need to have a presidential press conference. He can speak however he wants, whenever he wants. He's he's very available to reporters. Yeah. Uh, it, and it turns out, again, with Trump specifically, it doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't have meaning. But maybe we could think about that in a post-Trump era, that maybe some of this stuff, the White House correspondence did mm-hmm. some, some of this stuff really is kind of silly and we could move on without it. Yeah, I think there's a point there. Um, it's certainly true for any White House reporter with a modicum of self-awareness that access has shown to be not so valuable, right? Yes uh, and no, right? The most prized reporters, the most, some of the most uh, uh, in-demand reporters on, uh, are the people who can call up Trump and get him to get on the phone, right? Maggie Haberman has a, has a brief well, interview it, with Trump it is, today. It, that is considered valuable. I'm not sure it's correct that it is that. But within, within the Within ecosystem, the world right? of journalism is considered valuable, absolutely. Maggie but, Haberman isn't going to stop reporting, no. at, calling up Trump and asking. No, but I, I think the materials for questioning the value of access have been provided by this administration. Right. The counter to that would be Farenthold, right? Who's done, David Farenthold, The Washington Post, done great reporting, again, showing Trump to be a fraud. And the, and the two things can exist in the same place, right? That that kind of calling up Trump and asking him a question and getting him to respond, that's valuable. And Farenthold's Trump-free reporting, also incredibly valuable. Well, no, I think, I think that, I, I don't think I quite agree there, Peter, uh-huh. because if you have access to a source who is, fundamentally misinforming people with everything they say, you can't just say, well, it's valuable because we have access. There's, there's a problem there because <laughs> you have access to a disinformation machine. And I think that issue has been raised by Trump. But it's one of many things that have shown, and this is, I think, the, your point, that have been shown to be much more artificial and superficial than they looked Right. Um, so like the whole idea that um, that there is a White House with some sort of coherence between the president and his mind and his will and and the people who work there who represent him. That idea has also been broken in half by Trump. There is in that sense, there is no White House. There's nobody that you can go to who can tell you what the president right. thinks and whose word is reliable as a kind of stand-in for the president himself. And we're assuming that the, there will be a future and that at some point there'll be some sort of more normalcy and there will be people in the White House in, f- in the future where you could have those discussions. Probably, yeah. Because one of, the, one of the strange things about this situation is that Trump has undermined himself. I mean, the, the White House briefing room, that space with the podium and the seal yeah. is an, an enormous asset to the United States president. It's, it's like an incredible stage. I am here. I'm saying something important. I command all of your attention automatically. And the world listens. And to essentially piss that away by undermining it so that now it's kind of useless as a stage, there's no sense in which that helps Trump or that helps the presidency at all. It's, it's just an, an artifact of his own craziness. There was an early January story where Trump called up uh, the, the networks and said, I have a speech I want to make about the wall. I want you to give me airtime. And yep. there was a brief, you know, news cycle of should they or shouldn't they have right. given him the time. Right. Did you care about that? I did. Um, but then they obviously all gave him the They time. all did. But just making them ask that question and making them explain why they did is good. And their explanation basically was, we got to do it. He's the president. And we can't pick and choose. It, that was the on the record. It was that. It was also that he hasn't done this before. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it was, 
I think, a belief that we can um, counter his falsehoods with our commentary after, right? It was that. And it was also the fact that they didn't want to be the only one not televising. Right. And do you believe they made the right call, or do you think they all should have unanimously said, of course, without What I would like to see is yes. more plurality in this. It would have been good if one or two said no and one or two said yes. Yeah. And MC said no. Yeah. That'd good. be interesting. Yeah. Then you could at least have the discussion. Or, or a middle course, which is we're going to run it on tape delay once we know that there aren't any truly dangerous disinformation moments in it. Right. And again, that was part of the sort of the response to so that was you guys are being way too paternalistic. People can make up their own mind. We can sure. figure it out. You shouldn't be able to quarantine the, what the president says from the public. And by the yeah. way, anyone who wants to get this is going to get it anyway, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that, that sort of libertarian uh, hands-off philosophy can solve almost any problem in journalism. <laughs> speaking of li- – well, not libertarians. Speaking of alternate models, uh, you mentioned this the last time you were on. It's getting closer to being a thing. There is a uh, Dutch-based mm-hmm. news organization called The Correspondent. yes that you have uh, invested your time and energy in. And reputation. And reputation in. You went on Trevor Noah talking about it? Yes, we did. That's even fancier than Recode Media. Uh, Uh, Tell us what it is and and where it's at right now. Okay. Well, I was uh, the uh, first U.S. ambassador for day correspondent, a Dutch startup, dates from 2013. This is the world's most successful member-funded news site. Ad-free, member-funded, 90% of the revenues come directly from people who support it. Not a subscription. Just not a subscription. The difference is subscription is a product relationship. If you pay your money, you get the product. If you don't pay, you don't get it. Membership is you join the cause because you believe in this work. Yep. If you believe in the work, you want it to spread even to non-members, which is important because it means it doesn't imply a digital The NPR, public television. The NPR model, except it's ad-free. Right. And also sponsor-free and no government funding either. So all of those things increase independence. So they wanted to expand to the United States to English language publishing around the world. In order to do that, they wanted to start the way they started in the Netherlands, which is a crowdfunding campaign for founding members who believe in these principles and want to see a publication built on them. So I helped them design this campaign. I was their ambassador. We um, we raised about a million and a half dollars for the startup cost needed to get to the starting line. Um, and the campaign ran from November 14th, shortly after the election, to December 14th. We had a $2.5 million goal. We ended up with 45,000 members around the world and $2.6 million. So we met the goal, which means there is going to be a The Correspondent. And it's going to be up and running And it's going to be up and running in 2019. And now we have to figure out, I assume I'll be helping them. All right, what are we going to do with this? How, How do we create this approach, which is successful in the Netherlands, in in the U.S. Because the financial structure of it is is a unique or relatively unique thing, but then there's a whole other component of what they're actually going to make, right. which is very different, uh, basically counter to just about anything you see in, in traditional American That's journalism. the idea, so yeah. So spell, spell out that part. Okay, so, so their editorial philosophy uh, conflicts with a lot of what's normal in American journalism. Um, first of all, it's not the daily news grind. They don't try to participate in that because... With no ads, you don't have daily traffic quotas. All you really care about is at the end of the year, does that person think that this was valuable and will they renew? That's the one thing that matters. So the daily news cycle doesn't matter that much. Secondly, they drive editorial sovereignty downward in the organization. So each full-time correspondent isn't allowed to design their own beats and decide their own reporting projects, which is unusual. And in exchange for that, they are required to spend 30 to 40% of their time interacting with members around the knowledge that members have that could be useful to reporting. So being a member is not just supporting the correspondent financially. It's when we report on something that you know something about, you're supposed to help us out. Mm-hmm. Which could mean, for example, if you have expertise in healthcare or, or uh, cybersecurity, we might ask you not only for quotes, but we might like enlist you as a proofreader to make sure that we don't make any errors. That would be an example. So there's that. Then there's the fact that they practice what is called in Europe constructive journalism. And what that means is you can't report on a problem without also reporting on what can we do about this? What can you, Peter Kafka, do as an individual, like reducing your carbon footprint? What 
can we as a society do uh, about this? And that's part of their formula as well. And they have some other principles like that that try to address what people hate the most about digital news, <laughs> like repetitive coverage, clickbait headlines, yeah. um, sensationalism that is traffic-driven, right? Um, the fact that stories explode, you hear about nothing else for three days, and then you don't hear about them again, things like that. Um, the correspondence editorial approach is pitched to some of the pain points and sore points that have developed around digital journalism over the years. Half of that sounds like basically sort of the the upside the 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 pro case for subscription based businesses, right? You you're not worried about advertising, you're worried right. explicitly about about serving right. a base, and and you can sort of grade yourself yearly on whether that base comes back to you and gives you money. You can right. call it a membership, call it a subscription. That seems relatively virtuous right now. Question about how often you can apply that model and where you can apply it. Uh, the part again about going and asking your readers for help is the part that I can just feel the hair back of my neck yes, creeping except, up a little bit. Except one thing you have to keep in mind is the readers don't get to decide what gets reported on. Uh-huh. That you're not I crowdsourcing said, your journalism, not crowdsourcing your uh, editorial agenda, right? As I said, they drove sovereignty downward in the organization. The correspondents themselves decide what their beats are and what their reporting projects are. They are required to consult with the members when those members have knowledge that would be valuable Mm -hmm. to the reporting. So it's not like, tell us what our journalism should be about. And we're not giving you a soapbox to you don't get to have a quote in here. This is, I'm going to go make my work. You're going to like it or not. I would like you to be involved in it. And I'm going to formalize that sort of. But it's a very journalistic centric, journalism centric, journalist centric, sorry, model in which the correspondence, what's called the correspondent for a reason. Yeah. The correspondent is at the center of the model. This will launch the spring. Probably. First half of 2019 is the target. How many working journalists, correspondents will we have? Unclear. Somewhere at the beginning between five and ten, probably. Okay. Well, I imagine we're going to have another conversation about that this year. Hopefully. But, you know, it's like any other crowdfunding thing. Is like the campaign is is energizing, is fun, and then if it succeeds, now you got to do what you said you are going to do. That's the, pro- that's the yeah. downside. you got to do the work. <laughs> you, have to, you have to measure up to what you said you were going to do. But I'm I'm optimistic that it'll be a valuable thing to try. I'm going to leave on optimism because a lot of this conversation can be not optimistic. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for your time. Thanks for visiting us once again. Peter, Thanks for pleasure. giving us a free content for your Jack Dorsey post. We're going to talk about platforms, but we'll save that for the next podcast. Thank you. Okay, take care. Thanks again to Jay Rosen for coming on the podcast. We love having Jay come on. We love that you guys listen. Thank you for listening. Uh, we love it when you tell someone else that you like listening to this show feeling extra generous you can leave a review on apple podcasts very easy to do from your iphone or wherever you listen to podcasts spotify you get it thank you thanks to our sponsors thanks to cadence 13 and vox media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to recode media for free i've already thanked golda arthur and jelani carter i will also now thank eric johnson and joel robbie who also make this show possible thanks dudes this is recode media we will see you next week Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply.